0: programming throwdown episode 97 the holiday episode take it away jason
1: hey everyone so happy holidays all the different holidays are celebrated around this time of year um as we do every year, we're going to do a kind of combo giveaway and also um, answer folks' questions. So uh, if you have a question, now's a chance. If you're, if you're watching, uh, listening to this live, um, you can put a question in that channel. And uh, we will kind of alternate between kind of answering folks' questions and uh, giving away prizes. And so we can actually give away the first prize... Uh, We're going to do well. First, I'll talk about the prizes. So, we're going to do three um books to the top three folks that uh that worked out really well. So, you could pick any of our books of the show for 2019 um that that is available in ebook, and we will um uh uh, we will send it to you if you have Kindle or any of those services. Uh, We'll also give away three laptop stickers, which is pretty cool. We'll give away three t shirts, um, our and the way uh that that folks can enter this anyone who's a patron on our patreon is automatically enrolled in this um, so I'll be reaching out to um you know everyone who's not who's a patron uh has a uh, I have access to your email so I can send you an email uh telling you what uh, that you've won in case you missed the episode and uh, we can just coordinate together to figure out how to get all right our first winner um I don't want to say. I don't know what what we should say, but basically our first winner is Don R. So if your name is Don, there's a good chance that you won a free ebook. Any of the books of the show are good uh, candidates. And so I'll be reaching out to you, Don, and we will um, get you set up with a book. Nice. All All right. right. Congratulations. Yeah, congrats, Don. Do you have a question to kick it off?
0: Yeah, so I have some questions. I also have a topic I want to talk about at some point, but we'll see if we can work it in. So scrolling back through the history because I'm a terrible person and don't actively uh, read the Discord, uh, I see there's some question which I think was, is pretty easy. We can answer quickly. Is uh, if someone's trying to get started using Linux and wants to pick a Linux distribution, uh, they're looking for recommendations. But I'll also say, well,
1: what do you currently use? All right. So recommendations for Linux distros and what we currently use. Yep. Um. So I'm currently running um, Ubuntu. On uh, on my computers at home, uh, but at work we use Fedora, and I, I I think actually you can use Ubuntu at work, but um um but we have this thing called Chef, um and Chef goes in and automatically sets up a bunch of things, distributes software. It's like a workflow manager for IT, and and our Chef is designed for Fedora. So so I'm running Fedora at work, running Ubuntu at home. Um, and, and that's what I'm that's what I'm running as far as like which distro I recommend. Um, I have, you know, tried all of almost all of them or a lot of them at various points in time. Um, I think, you know, Gentoo is fun, but it's it's good if you're learning. But but I wouldn't use that as a production system. It just requires too much maintenance. Um, I'm a big fan of Ubuntu. It's just it's pretty clean. It kind of gets the job done. Um, you know, it's built on Debian. So it's pretty stable. Uh, what about you? So I've
0: mostly used Ubuntu, and and I'm not nerdy about Linux. So for me, most distributions that are fairly popular, oh, I'm probably going to get in trouble, anyways, um, mostly popular ones because they're the easiest to find help for. If if you stay aside from any of the more esoteric ones, unless you really want to get into it, um, for the most part, they're kind of equivalent. I try not to over-embellish my systems so that I can uh, move easily between them. Um, So I mostly use Ubuntu mostly because easiest to find answers and help for. Um, I I know there's a number of interesting developments related to like Linux distributions, which are better for containerization um, and the progress that's been seen as part of that. And I think that's pretty interesting. Um, but yeah, I don't really have a lot of experience outside of, I guess I'd used Debian stuff before and then now Ubuntu. Um, so I, I don't have, a, if you're never used it before, oh, I don't know what would be like a good first like install Linux on something and try it. I always recommend people put it in a VM and just use it in the VM. Um, then you can use it from within whatever you're using now, Windows or Mac or... I mean, if you're on, I guess, a, a X computer, or, oh, sorry, Mac OS computer, um, you can pretty much... It It's not technically Linux, but you can pretty much treat it like it is and learn a lot of it.
1: Yep, yep. Also, like, Docker is awesome and Vagrant is awesome. Both of those are... Um, Super super lightweight ways um, to get a, a Linux, you know, system. So like you could you could run Docker and just do I think it's like Docker run Ubuntu colon latest, and just that one line will give you a, a bash prompt in Ubuntu, and you can run that regardless of whatever OS you're in, and if you like delete the entire hard drive or something it's fine because it's just a docker image um nice. yeah but that's not graphical so you're really going to have to get your hands dirty <laughs> cool all right let's do the next book so the next the next person is the next person is Sean so Sean B I'm assuming it's Sean B oh yeah oh here we go yeah so Sean last name starts with a B so Sean B congratulations you won an ebook i'm going to be reaching out to you Um, later on, uh, today and, uh, we'll work together to figure out, figure out which book you get.
0: Nice. Congratulations. Uh, so before we go into another question, I have, uh, we haven't done news segment in a while. And although I've had various things floating around, I wanted to get your opinion on if you had seen the AI dungeon.
1: You know, I saw that. Is that the one where it's like, uh, uh, procedurally generated?
0: Well, so it's not procedurally. So they used the oh, what was it? Is it GPT?
1: Yeah, yeah. The open, the, um, yeah. Procedural isn't the right word, but yeah, they're, they're using the language, the the forward model from OpenAI. Yeah.
0: So, so I'll will give a brief overthink and then you can describe. So um, most people have probably heard about it. It got it's a fair number of I guess live streamers on YouTube uh, have been playing it to some hilarity. Um, but if you've ever played a text-based RPG, which go back to the dawn of computer games, I guess. Although they still have a following today of new content being created. Uh, You would be placed in a world and you would have some set of actions you could do. And it's like a graphical RPG, but you just have to type in. And so it feels interesting because you're almost chatting with the computer, like pick up keys, look around the room, walk east, walk north. Um, And so you're actually describing what you want to do rather than like pressing keys and hotkeys and making it happen, clicking with your mouse. And so someone took the GPT-2 model, is it? Yeah. Uh, yeah. And trained it on a bunch of these text adventures and RPG texts. And so it gives you that familiar thing where you're given a text prompt, but instead of a limited vocabulary of pre-programmed grammars that you could use, like a verb, and then, I guess, would that be an adjective? Like walk east? I don't know. Uh, Non-English person.
1: Yeah, I don't know either. I guess, uh, no, It's uh, uh, I think it's an object of adverb? the verb. Direct uh, okay. object, I think. Anyways.
0: So instead of having to put like a verb first where you choose from a dictionary and then, you know, a second set of parameters that you choose from, uh, you pretty much say anything you want. Uh, so it'll give you, you give it, I, I think they have like some pre-canned um, scenarios you can do or you can give it sort of like a seed sentence about like a, the setting. And then it'll give you, you know, the first thing, like you appear in a land filled with spewing volcanoes and the smell of sulfur. And then that's just it. And you can pretty much say whatever you want to do. Um, And the interesting thing is, instead of having this limited, that it'll try to respond to pretty much any text. So if you say, uh, give myself a magical blizzard cloud over my head, um, it'll say, snow begins to fall and melt into rain. Uh, What do you do next? (laughs) <laughs> and it's just sort of this interactive back and forth. And it, to me, was just really interesting because although from the AI aspect, I guess it's pretty interesting. And the guy was running up huge server bills based on you know how he was actually trying to run the thing. He's a, from a university and it was you know just a project he did, I guess on the side, he was racking up sort of huge bills uh, for everybody logging in and booting up these systems and loading these giant models and executing them. Um, but just from the, the concept, it's fascinating because If for kind of one of these first times you pretty much just say anything and the computer will attempt to respond to you so it's almost just like a sophisticated chat bot and so you get these people sharing stories that they have with the computer where sometimes it gives non sequiturs but if you kind of play along and and are careful in what you choose it'll just respond back almost as if you're just talking with a friend and i've never played dungeons and dragons with actual dungeon master you know person but i kind of imagine it's like what happens there where you can say anything you want, and there's like a set of rules where it tries to respond to you appropriately. Um, but you never really see that in computers because it's just too hard. The universe of what people can say is just too big.
1: Yeah, I think I think the part that, and I haven't looked at it yet, so so maybe I'm missing this, but it seemed like, uh, um, like you can't really win, right? Or like, or make progress. I mean, progress. it will let you win. Yeah. So so like, what does it mean to win when you're making no, it all up as you go? Oh like you could just say like I just won and it'll talk about what a winner you are. <laughs>
0: it's like declare a victory.
1: Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean I think so this But, but is, how do
0: you win in life?
1: Yeah, good point. So so this is the uh um this is sort of the quintessential AI question of our time, which is you know, we had all of this symbolic uh AI, right? We had these expert systems and we had, you know, people writing millions of lines of Lisp. And um um and it's it's algebraic, right? And it's it's like a formal automata. Um, and then we went to you know this new sort of deep learning where everything is now signal processing, and there there are no symbols. It's just like uh, just this like crackles of energy flying around. Um, and so this is a case where it's like you kind of need to reunite those two fields. So like there needs to be sort of some concept of, I don't know, a key and a door. And, and that can't just float away. Like it has to be sort of a part of the story indefinitely. Right. Um, and so, and so that's, I think that's the piece that's kind of missing is you can't do the like problem solving and the game part of it without some type of symbolic AI. Yeah. But it's, it's, it's amazing. I mean, I think it'll happen. It's just a matter of time, but that's, that's the cutting edge.
0: But I guess to me, like the equivalent to Dungeons and Dragons is the, you know, from what I understand, it, it doesn't have to have strong objectives. Like now there are end games for Minecraft and stuff. But I mean, you just go in and it's just a sandbox. You kind of just do yeah. things like those are also valuable experiences without the conventional sort of quote-unquote game framework.
1: Yeah, that's a really good point. I think I was looking at it through the lens of 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 a of an adventure game when uh when you are right. It's really more of like a like a sandbox. It's really an a, a interactive fiction sandbox. Yeah that's so cool. I'm 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 really inspired now. I'm going to check that out. I think we should do we, yeah, you should
0: play it and tell us like recount the story.
1: Yeah, there was one where they trained it on news and you could give it a news headline and it would write the story. That was hilarious. Yes. Um so you could you could say anything you want. You could say, you know, the United States sinks into the ocean and it would write a whole story about it and it <laughs> sounded pretty plausible.
0: Yeah, I mean you have to be generous because it's still like I guess early days. Um, but if you forgive it and, like, go along with what it's trying to say, I mean, I think you ever read those, I, I read Dwarf Fortress stories sometimes. Yeah, right. Yep. All of this from a few ASCII characters on the screen, and this person is spinning this giant tale of, you know, heroism from their mighty dwarves.
1: I actually installed Dwarf Fortress uh, about a couple of days ago, just randomly, I wanted to get back into it. And, yeah, that <laughs> learning curve is is brutal, but it's super.
0: All right, I think some more giveaways.
1: Let's do it. Okay, so the next person is James. James K. Um, James K., you are a... James K. has been a patron for a long time, which is awesome. Con- con- thank you, James. Thank you so much for your patronage. You. And uh, it's paid off. You get a uh, ebook of your choosing. And so I'll reach out to you to, to set that up.
0: Um, cool. We okay. can
1: go to the... Um, to... Yeah,
0: so I pulled, pulled a bunch of them out. Um, so the next one out of there we had is... The, uh, sorry, I some of the others I didn't write down the names of this one I did. So x386 was asking about learning Java data structure. Uh, and people were replying and in, in sort of, you know, indicating that just learning general data structures uh, as opposed to the specifics of Java. although Java has some interesting ones. And what I'll say here is actually rather than reading a book about data structures, although maybe that's good too. I guess it's hard to say. I, I read a book about data structures for a class pretty early on. So I guess I got exposed to some of them. But I would recommend learning a little bit about design patterns. And if you really want some like beginning level stuff, the we've recommended on the show before, but the Head First Design Patterns book yep. as a way to motivate learning about, I mean, I guess it's about design patterns. Um, But learning about those design patterns will also introduce you to a number of data structures, which I think is pretty good. Aside from that, it's mostly task-based. So like if you need efficient lookup, you you know, learning about hash hash maps and the various things related to them or learning about linked lists, you know, it becomes more about like what you're trying to do and the specifics of it. But for a sort of more cohesive narrative that will force you to learn various Data structures at a different level. I think design patterns is a good way to go.
1: Yep. Yeah, I've read that book. Uh, it's it's fantastic. I think it's a good way to sort of motivate the data structure with with a use case instead of just trying to learn this library of data structures.
0: But I guess if you were trying to do like computer competition or oh yeah, uh, that's totally different. tech tech yeah. company tech company interview algorithm data structures. Yeah, I think just like uh, any pretty much any of the like popular data structures books are probably a good approach. The MIT one is pretty popular, um, yep. but there's a variety of them. And I think any of those is good. And yeah, it's hard to get into, but I, I don't know of a way around that. Like you, you kind of just have to get exposed to a variety of things and learning them somewhat as like a puzzle. And then once you understand them, it sort of clicks and makes sense.
1: Yeah, what I, what I recommend to folks too is, is after that is to um, check out these, these coding sites like HackerRank and TopCoder. And look at the the hard problems and read the um, the solutions to them. And so, if you read the problem, I mean, the problems is going to be fictitious, but like it's you know loosely based in reality. Um, so it might be something like routing mail or something like that. And uh, and then you can see the data structure they use, and 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 it kind of gives you an idea of how that could work in the real world. Yeah, when you
0: get to those kind of data structures, I guess maybe I've never really thought about it deeply, but the design pattern style object-oriented designing and the data structures there is somewhat different than the data structures as entwined with algorithms that is the more like traditional computer science stuff.
1: Yep, yep, yeah. There, a design pattern could could use a data structure, but it doesn't have to. Um, but yeah, I think they're both important for different reasons. Like one one will get you through the interview and the other <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so, so it's probably, probably worth, worth knowing both. Um, so Joe actually in the chat has a. Like, what are our guys, what are our thoughts on the PinePhone or the LibREN5 driving? Do you know what that is, PinePhone? Uh, isn't it uh, uh, no,
0: like a phone that's open source? Like, uh, oh, yeah, yeah, here we
1: go, yeah. Oh, yeah, okay. So, yeah, uh, I, I could talk briefly about, you know, I, I, uh, I use an Android phone and um, I do have, a, um, what's it called, F-Droid And so you can install open source software. I was using this other thing called Aptoid, which would let you install. It's another third party, you know, kind of play store. Um, And uh, one of the things I noticed about Android is uh, the phone just degrades quickly. You know, like my phone is two years old and it already has a ton of issues. Um, Like sometimes the cell just is gone. Like I just have no 3G, like no cell. I can't call. And so I just have to reboot the phone. And it just seems like every time I get a phone after a couple of years it has serious issues. Um so like right now I have the Pixel 2 XL. It, part of it too is you know I'm I'm not the most gentle with my phone. Um you know, it kind of goes everywhere with you. I don't I don't have a case and so it's, it's part of it might be self-inflicted. Um but yeah, I feel like if if I go open source on my phone it's just going to make those worse. I used to do a lot of uh just random things with the phone. Um, but but now I've started to just do more on the web and so and so I'm just using less apps and just doing less um, uh, y- y- doing fewer things on the phone or, or maybe another way of saying is doing almost everything inside of the browser of the phone. And so I'd probably not go open source on the phone unless maybe, you know, it was super reliable. But open source is usually not good for that. So what's your what's your take, Patrick?
0: Yeah, so so I'm looking here at the comparison chart between the Librem 5 and the PinePhone. I guess they're sort of the same but also very different. So what I'd say is I, I love the, the sort of, you know, hacking aspect of a lot of this, but I don't really want to do it in this form factor. Yeah. This form yeah. factor seems overly cramped. So like hacking on a single board computer like a Raspberry Pi or an Arduino or, you know, something like that. Those things would be interesting to me and I could do projects on them if I'm going to do computer style work and write applications, I kind of want to do that on like my laptop or or my desk. Um, My phone, I see more as like, I guess I would say like a video game console. I would want it to be closer to, which is I want it that I, you know, it works. I sit down, I do a thing and it just, it's good at what it does, which is being a phone, you know, and and playing something. So like, I want it to be a, a curated thing. Also, I mean, just like the practical aspects, like having a kernel panic or something happen on, my phone, when I'm trying to make a phone call, doesn't exactly sound like fun to me?
1: Um, <laughs> yeah. For you know, some people. I'm oh, sorry, go ahead. Oh, yeah. You know what would be really cool would be, um, you know, changing the morphology of the phone. Like, for example, if I could make my phone look and feel like an Xbox controller with a screen in it. And so, mm-hmm. I mean, I don't know how that would fit in my pocket. I have to think that through. But basically, like, if the phone had, you know... Real buttons and an analog joystick, but it was it was all built in. Like I could three D print the case of the phone, and it and it had all of that. Um, That's interesting. I think there are cases though. That That's like can, a phone
0: as module or something.
1: Yeah, I mean there are those cases you can wrap around. There are the ones too where the phone clips in. That just is too clunky. But but there are the cases that have the hardware buttons. Uh, I I probably start there before going to an open source.
0: So so if I had a very specific use case, like I was very security minded, or I was, uh, you know, monitoring a lot of closed caption cameras and wanted like very specific, complete control over how my phone behaved for very specific cases that aren't very in line with the mainstream. I think these would be cool, and and I could see myself turning to one of them as a second device or even as my primary device if that was my thing in life. Um, but for me, I guess I fit close enough in with what most people want to do on their phone, and the phone is very, very like. The Android phones that come out from the major vendors, the iPhones from Apple, like I feel a lot of time has been spent polishing off the sharp edges um, and making them very well tuned for sort of the average use case. And so if you're anywhere close to the average use case, those phones are probably going to work really well because they're manufactured at such volumes and with such history. And something like this would be one of these open source phones would be really cool for a second phone or if you had a very specific purpose that was very far outside the mainstream.
1: Yeah, you know, one thing I'm surprised is that AR using the phone hasn't really taken off. Like there's some cool, I've seen some cool use cases like I think in Google Maps if you're walking around, you can actually uh it'll show the camera and then it'll show the path like you know projected on the camera. Um but I kind of expected that to be a bigger thing and uh um yeah, it just seems like I don't know, it just seems like that there hasn't been as much uh, let's say, innovation in the cell phone. Yeah.
0: But the biggest problem is, yeah, exactly. Sometimes I need my cell phone to be able to call my family or, you know, hail a taxi, Uber. And if if it's just freaked out and in some sort of weird and the battery drained, that's really going to give me a bad day.
1: Yeah, makes sense. All right, so uh, on to the... Should we do t-shirts or stickers next? Which one do you think is more valuable?
0: Let's do one of each.
1: Let's do... So so we should alternate?
0: Oh, Okay. Well so no, I I've, I've, I've grouped I people into three
1: groups. Yeah, I just don't know which what which, which tier. Uh, we'll we'll do, we'll do we'll do T-shirts. I think T-shirts are more expensive. So we can just go based <laughs> on that. We'll let we'll let the economy decide. Um, so Clayton T who uh, actually's been also been a Patreon for an extremely long time. I don't know if it says I'm going I'm I'm basing that based on um um some information. So I don't know if I have the actual uh, I'll see if I can look that up. But but from, from what I can see here, they've been a patron for a super long time. Thank you so much, Clayton. And uh, you're getting a t shirt, which is awesome. So I'm going nice. to reach out to you uh, later today and, uh, and send that your work. All right. You want to do another one? Uh, another t shirt or another question? Oh, let's do another t shirt. Let's do another t shirt. Double. Let's or get something. some people some clothes. <laughs> yeah, let's get people dressed. Uh, I think it's like Maslow's hierarchy of needs, right? You need your t shirt before you can ask the right question. Number one. Um, James H. James H. is uh, is a proud owner of a T-shirt. This is amazing. So first of all, I just want to say, I mean, I'm looking at, I have a spreadsheet here, which is, yeah, I wish I could tell you I'm some marketing guru or I know all about, but reality is 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 we spend most of our time creating content, and so I don't spend a lot of time looking at the patron dashboard. So so this is a rare opportunity for me, and I'm just I'm just really overwhelmed by seeing just how many people have been supporters for for so long like years and uh and i think that's amazing so thank you so much james and and everybody else um but james you're a lucky winner of a t-shirt and so we'll get that over to you congratulations yeah thanks to
0: all the patreon and the people who uh do the audible subscriptions who uh respond to the advertisers and advertising and the people who um buy from our amazon links for the books of the show um, all of that helps out. It's actually really
1: awesome. Yeah. So nod, nod edge or nod, nodge. Nodge has a question uh, in the in the Discord. How do we find the sweet spot between over and and uh, if you have like the uh, if you have an answer wherever you work, <laughs> that is like probably one of the hardest questions. Um, um do you. Want, I could take a crack at it, or do you want to? Yeah, you go ed- first. Okay, I'll I'll go first. Um, so yeah, it's a really good question. I think. So one thing is, if you can somehow measure the expected drift, um, I think that's really important. So, so, so we're actually going to talk next month. We're going to uh, publish an episode with uh, a person who's an expert on agile and a lot of these sort of processes, software engineering processes. And and one of the the, the takeaways, kind of a spoiler, is that um, you want to really learn from from the past. So you want to sort of make the past, uh, gather as much signal as you can from the past and use that to sort of inform the future. And so that, that's one way to do it. Another way is just maybe you have some common sense reasoning, like you know that you're releasing a new product, right? But, but uh, find out sort of like how much entropy there's gonna be you know, in the future, and, and that will kind of steer you in the right direction there. So for example, if you're writing version two of something, um, and and the reason you're writing it is because version one is slow and clunky and has bugs. Well, then you want to apply more engineering rigor and and you want to maybe redo the database and and put a lot of effort there, right? Um, you know, conversely, if if you're making an app and you don't know if anyone's going to use it um, and you don't know how they're going to use it, that's not really a good time to be um, uh, you know writing just like a, a ton of Things to make it very highly scalable and available, and, and all of that. And so I I think knowing your audience and knowing the product is really key there. Um, that that's really going to give you the insight because because um, you can't really. Um, I think that you, you can't really like give the you can't build the ultimate product on day one, right? You're going to have to adapt, which means what you write now is probably not going to be the right answer, no matter how well you engineer. And so
0: yeah, it's it's a really Good summary. I mean, no one has the right answer because there's not only one answer. And like Jason was saying, I mean, it largely depends on how much things are going to change and how well you're predicting what's happening. If you look at, to, I guess, play it by analogy, if you look at startups, they take funding, but they often pivot, right? They often think they're going to do one thing. And then even the very successful ones end up doing not that thing.
1: Yeah, like Um, Slack. Slack was a a IRC uh, client that a video game company wrote. And then they realized that the IRC client uh, was way more popular than video game.
0: Yep, and I mean, you can go down the list of, uh, I think Twitter was an in-company communications thing. Yep, yep. Uh, yeah, so I mean, lots of these companies pivot. So I'd say the same thing is probably true on smaller scales, right? Which is, however, err on the side of under-engineering and over-engineering is probably safer. Yep, um, yep. But at the same time, I would say like each person develops a gut feel about their systems and their technology stack and what parts really have to get addressed up front and what parts can be delayed without ruining everything. Um, But it's always a gut call. Like no one actually knows.
1: Yep. Yeah, I totally agree. Yeah. I mean, it's something you'll just, you'll just hone in on with experience. I mean, it's, it's, it's like any trade you have to, you have to just build a lot of stuff to figure out sort of the sweet spot there and get that intuition. Um, okay. So last t-shirt goes to Scott G. Um, so Scott G, you are a proud owner of a t-shirt. I'm going to reach out to you, uh, later on today.
0: Congratulations. All right. Uh, Sonhei, uh, on the discord a while ago asked for recommendations related to image processing. That's a a big, big, big question.
1: (laughs) Yeah, there's a lot there. So I, I can, um, Um, well, yeah, I mean, I I can talk specifically about AI and Patrick, you probably know more about, about the signal processing part of it. Um, but, but for AI, the, the, the most popular ones are Detectron, um, which does uh, a bunch of object detection. They have a model you can download, which has, you know, a bunch of different categories or if you need to train your own, you can do that. Um, there's one called Hugging Face, I think. Hugging (laughs) Face is another one. Um, there's another one called I think it's literally just called face recognition. Uh, if you put GitHub face recognition, you'll find it, and that has an insane number of stars. Actually, that is the most starred repository I think in all of GitHub. It's just called face recognition, and it it does that thing very well. Um, so you know, in general, I would say that that you know you should um, you should really try to use existing libraries. I mean, image processing requires enormous amounts of data and compute. And so um, um, transfer learning, you know, starting with one of these models is definitely the way to go. Even if, even if you're building something specific, you wanna start with one of these solutions.
0: Yeah, I mean, I guess from the signal processing-ish side as a way to describe it, I mean, looking at OpenCV and just looking at various functions that it uses and, and how to interface them, is a great way to start. I'm not normally a big Python person, but Python works really well for this because it's pretty easy to use OpenCV, open a file, apply blurs to it, understand how that works, dig into what that is really doing under the hood, the difference of doing them with uh, convolution versus doing them in frequency space, right? So thinking about those kinds of things, but even just understanding like, how the image data is stored. How do you change channels? How would you swap red and green? What does that do? How is the image represented in memory? Um, It's a very far stretch from what Jason was just describing. Um, But I mean, I think these things come up, at least in my career, have come up reasonably often, where knowing how, I mean, ultimately they're big matrices, I guess that's a spoiler. Um, (laughs) You know, like understanding what those matrices represent, how to manipulate them is a generally pretty useful skill um and so thinking through how that works playing around with it on your own trying to do your own like for instance uh writing your own function to convert a red green blue image into a grayscale image um how do you weight various channels like working through that although it seems like really redundant and why would you not just use oh maybe you don't even know but there's a standard like balance of the channels to use to replicate what the human vision sees but I mean, like working through on your own and understanding what that does actually teaches you a lot. Um, and then there's all sorts of tangents, not even getting into the sort of machine learning image recognition part of it, but just doing things like understanding barrier masks and debayering, and what did various filter, like not every camera uses the same image filters for the red, green, and blue channels. How does that impact things? It's a like completely different way to take it, but is enormously fascinating. And people spend their careers, um, you know, thinking about those kinds of things. Uh, yep. Yep. So I, yeah, I mean, there's lots and lots and lots of ways to take it. It depend, I would say do something which you find interesting because it'll keep you motivated.
1: Yeah, that's such a good point. Yeah, totally. And and I think, uh, um, yeah, having having a sort of goal in mind is, is, is really important, especially for things like image processing. Because you might say, well, I want to be able to recognize absolutely everything. And um, those are super super hard open problems. It's much better if you can start with like yeah, I want to distinguish these three things
0: um I'll give a shout out to one specific project here because I'm doing t- t- the hardware thing it's my shtick, I guess um, and that is open MV they call themselves the Arduino of uh, vision of machine vision I think is it
1: NV or MV
0: uh, machine vision open oh, okay vision. open, open, open MV. MV so it's a little. PCB that has a camera and a processor attached to it. And they have a really nice uh, uh, infrastructure built around it for bringing in the images, doing common manipulation, streaming them out to your computer so you can see them, uh, and really bringing it together with an IDE and stuff uh, like you would see for an Arduino board. Um, and I really like this project. I did the Kickstarter for the latest one and, and got it. I, I haven't had a chance to open it up and play with it yet, but it's in my short list of to-dos. To to that's play around awesome. with this, and I think something like this is a really interesting way to get started. Because Wait, how much it's does that cost? Visceral. I want to say it's like. Here, uh, let me. I'll just look on the store because I don't want to miss. Well, roughly,
1: like is it a hundred dollars, $1, a thousand no, dollars?
0: Yeah, like I wanna say it's like fifty dollars. Oh man,
1: that's amazing. Sixty-five dollars,
0: yeah, I guess, for the H7, which is their newer one, the OpenMV H7, which is a lens, the board, the camera. It's not as cheap as an Arduino, but it's not. I mean for, for a, like chalking it up to a learning experience and like with what you're getting with it, that's pretty nice.
1: Yeah, I mean, 60 bucks is amazing. Totally amazing. Yeah, yeah I'm gonna get so, one of those.
0: Yeah, so I, I think this is a good project to, to kind of play around with and sort of start interacting with these at a very low level. Um, I wouldn't recommend running the Tektron. It probably doesn't even work on this. I have to run a very, very small model, if at all. Um, but if you want the sort of opposite end of this, like how hardware deals with images and low-level image processing, I think is a great way to use.
1: Yeah, and you could always you could always pipe that to your computer and then.
0: That's exactly it. right. Yeah.
1: Yeah, that makes sense. Cool. All right, so our, our first sticker winner is Jason D. Um, Jason D. is is uh, been a patron for a little more than half a year, and uh, you are a winner of a sticker. I'll be reaching out to you to figure out how to get that laptop sticker. Cool. So we have a question. Um, is it worth going back? This is from KZ Izmi. Is it worth going back to school to get a master's, even if it won't necessarily bump my pay grade? I really enjoyed undergrad. Um, yeah, I really enjoyed undergrad. Is it worth getting a master's? So Patrick, you actually got a master's while you were I working. Did. Yes. And so what was it like getting a master's while you were working and did it, you know, was it net positive? Uh, This
0: is really hard to say. Like, I don't think I would do it today. Um, Like, I'm glad I did because it's one of those things that like the sooner to your academic, like undergraduate that you do it, I think the easier it is. Not to say that it's impossible um, at any level, but um, I think it honestly, it it really depends. If if you can stay motivated to do it, um, going back and getting a degree might be worth it. Right. It, it helps. I don't know how it would hurt other than it being kind of expensive. Um, but if it, you if it's offered through your work, I don't necessarily see it as a big risk of a thing to do. But I also like having been a person who does interviews and looks at resumes. Like, I don't really take it as a huge positive, like a person who's gone and worked for two years versus a person a year or two versus a person who's getting a master's degree. I wouldn't necessarily prefer one over the other unless the master's degree was something very specific to what we did. Um, but the same would be true if they worked on something specific to what we did. Now, that's just sort of like my experience and what I've done with it. Yeah, I know it sense. varies a lot, um, but I would say in general, if you're having trouble finding good work and getting hired, my initial gut feels is not due to the fact of not having a master. There's yeah, probably a yeah. few n- niches and specific places where that could be a problem, but the general market I haven't seen being particularly interested in um, master's degrees, so PhDs is kind of a different story, but master's degrees, I, I would say you maybe look at other stuff, look to get experiences, There's probably cheaper and more time efficient ways to increase your higher ability than, than doing a master's degree. That isn't to say you shouldn't do it or that it has no benefit. I just think if you're doing it to improve your resume hireability, I would probably not recommend it.
1: So what, did, what, does it, what is the benefit then?
0: So, I mean, I think the benefit is being able to do more classes. Most people, when they're doing their undergrad, don't get to try all of the different classes and different specialties of computer science, uh, just using that as an example. So going to a master's degree, you could delve a little deeper into various topics, which you kind of didn't get to, and you might not in your first job have access to or second job. Um, yeah, that totally back,
1: makes sense. It's a really good Going answer.
0: back to school after a few years, like five, ten years, could catch you back up on developments or refocus you. Um, you know, doing it while you work, right? Like continuing education, that's, that's a, always a good thing, I guess. Um, and, you know, I guess two, all, all else being equal between two people, having a master's degree is worth something. Um,
1: yeah, I think, I, think, I think it totally makes sense that like the, the, you know, you might not, you know, at your current job, be able to do image processing, but you might want to gain that speciality. And so to to get out of that sort of trap, um, you could you could do the degree. But it's it sounds like if you're going to do it, you should keep working, and take the extra year. Um, um, I, I guess it would take three years instead of two. Uh, how yeah, I how did many mine years? Mine in three
0: years. I did mine in three. So yeah, I did one class. So that was specific. To, to, I guess mine everyone's a little different. But I did. So I did one class a semester, three semesters a year, and um, did it in whatever ten says ten, ten credits. For me. Mm-hmm. Um. But that varies, I guess. It's a, it's a lot of work, though, right? There's, I don't want to say busy work, but doing it while you work is hard because you might have deadlines on your, you know, job, and then you also have a paper due.
1: Yep. Yep. Yeah, I remember. Um. Yeah, I remember exactly that having a deadline and a paper due on the same day, and it's it's brutal. But I think it's it's good to do it early, um, when it's a lot of the knowledge is still fresh. Um, I feel like uh, if you're gonna do it. Good to knock it out early. Oh, the other thing is, you know, in both of our cases, um, our, our, our jobs paid for our graduate degrees. And that's I think that's a that's a yep. game changer. Right. So, I mean, if you yes. have to drop 60 K uh, to get the master's degree, it's going to be pretty hard to recoup that. Again, it doesn't mean you yep. shouldn't do it. It just means that, uh, um, you know, it depends on what your goals are.
0: Also, the story is completely different if you are trying to get like a computer science or related master's degree. And that's not a graduate degree. Um, I think that's a whole separate topic. But right? um, you uh, you broke
1: up there. What? what can you well, repeat that?
0: I said, yeah, I think it's a completely different topic if your undergraduate degree wasn't in a computer science related field and you want to do your master's degree in a computer science related Oh, field. that is a
1: really, really good point. Yeah, I've seen that's- resumes where that was the case. I do think in that case, it makes a big difference. Yeah, because because... um. I think you want to show that you have sort of the core, you know, CS fundamentals. Yeah,
0: I, I think that's, yeah, you're right. I think the value proposition there is very
1: cool. All right. So we can go to our next sticker winner. It's Daniel H. Daniel's been a patron for a little under a year. And um, wow, Daniel is from a very interesting, um, what is the country code CH? So I'm totally gonna out our friend Daniel here, but I just gotta yeah. know. Th- Switzerland. Oh, okay. That's not as that's, that's not as exotic as I thought it would be. Uh-huh. I, but but still, I mean, see, uh, Daniel from Switzerland. Thank you so much being a patron for um, a little under a year, and um, we will we will send a sticker your way. I'll reach out to you to get um, a way to uh, to mail that out to you. Cool.
0: So we have uh, one more question from a while ago, and, and five. Questions. But our last uh, uh, question that people have sent in to us is from Cheesy Taco, uh, how to approach resumes and job titles. They give a little context here about, you know, they're basically doing programming on the job now. uh, Excuse me if the summary is not accurate, but, you know, doing programming on the job now, but their job title doesn't really reflect that. And they're sort of worried about, you know, they don't want to say that they're a programmer as a job title because, you know, their actual job title isn't that at all, um, but it is what they do. And sort of how would they address that? So what would your recommendation, Jason, if someone is doing like scripting and programming and maybe even building applications uh, at their job, but maybe they have a different title like researcher or, you know, uh, you know, a, a associate or something like just a generic title at maybe a commercial company. Um, and how would you what would you do for the resume? Like, how would you look for that to be represented so that they're not lying, but that they're also communicating what they're.
1: Yeah, this is uh very, very interesting question. Um, so the, the thing about job titles are, job titles are one of the few things that are represented very clearly in a background check, right? So, so um, you know, you can't really have a lot of latitude there. Um, for example, if, if, if you're a, uh, an accountant and you say you're a software engineer, um, well, let me give another example. If you're an accountant with, you know, three years programming in Visual Basic, and you say I programmed a Visual Basic for uh, four years. That's that's pretty hard to 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 verify, right? I mean, you should never lie about anything. But but if, but if you're going to do that one, um, you could basically get away with it. Um, um, but but if you if you're an accountant, and you say you're a software engineer, uh, and you go through the interview, let's say you even get the job, um, when they do the background check before they make you the official offer, that that's immediately going to gonna gonna show up so so you can't really do that so so you know you have the job title that you have um you know nowadays with you know so much ai um in in the in the in the recruiting process um you know there's going to be some companies that will you know filter that and so you know i think that that the job title i think in some cases could could be a challenge um i still think that you know all of the things that we mentioned for folks who are you know students or in school, they still apply. So you know, having a good GitHub account, a presence, having a portfolio, um, taking some 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 MOOCs, doing some classes. We had a show with with the director at Udacity, uh, so, so doing some Udacity classes. Um, you know those are all stellar, um, and and obviously writing what you do under your job title and your resume. Um, but yeah, I think I think. Um, I think that is one of the big challenges and I think in general, a piece of advice I've heard is, is, is kind of do what the company does. So in other words, if you're a software developer, try to join a company where software is is kind of their focus. Um, And so, and so that will prevent that, that kind of misalignment. Um, But yeah, what's, what's your take on it?
0: Yeah, I agree. I I would say for me, I think there's a lot of latitude in how you do your resume. So as Jason pointed out, you should never lie. going to end poorly um it, it, in most cases many cases um and so i think what you can do though is you i've seen people do is uh even within a single position at a company list out like projects they have worked on and what their role was on that project um and then maybe under that so if you imagine like uh, you know having sections and you know you're having like bold the company you work at and to the right of it having what you did on that project like Maybe you were a tech lead. Maybe you were a programmer. Maybe you were an architect, right? Saying something like that. And then underneath the, like, that part, like, to the left, you know, maybe, or under, just saying, like, title, you know, whatever your current title is. Or even, you know, people might put software engineer level three or something. So, I've seen people do this on their resume. I think that might be a good form to take if this is your thing. So, if you actually are legitimately doing programming uh, and you want to say, like, you know, application developer as your, like, role but your position also included your title, just so that it's not confusing or ambiguous and just call it out sort of like at the bottom of the section or like in a sort of subheading, then I think, I don't don't know that that would be a problem. Like I, I, it's completely honest. And as Jason pointed out, people who use keyword screening or whatever will not, it, it won't take issue with that, right? It's not gonna screen you out because you say your title is something different and you'll make sure to get screened in by having the right keywords.
1: Yeah, that totally makes sense. Totally makes sense. And you have the as long as you have the job title, um, uh, in there, then then you know the person who's doing the background check, it's 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 a third party company, and what they're going to do is they're going to look at your resume, and they're going to look at the job title that is coming from your former employer, and they're going to look for a match, and and, it, and as long as that matches anywhere, they're gonna they're gonna say that's fine, right? Um, so so yeah, I think that's. I think putting it framing, framing your, your, your job title, um, is, is, is the right answer there. That's a solid answer. Sweet. Cool. All right. Let's do the last sticker and then we can answer a few more questions. Um, um, you know, time permitting, but so, so Devin C, Devin C has been a patron for two years. Um, thank you so much, Devin. And, uh, you are getting a sticker. Very cool.
0: And yeah, uh, I think that's all the questions we have so far from the, from the discord. So, uh, if you have any more from email that you had, or if you want to just go ahead and finish up the giveaways and this up and wish everyone a happy new year.
1: Yeah, actually, well, there's. I'll just go through. There's a couple of questions that are pretty short. Uh, someone said, "Did I get sweaty when Eternal Terminal was on Hacker News front page?" Um, I got a lot of emails. I didn't know it was on Hacker News until uh, until um, somebody somebody told me. So I wasn't the one who posted it. So so that was kind of a surprise. I was actually driving uh, back from a, from a family vacation, um, at the Southern part of the state. And so I was, I was in the car and I got this message like, Hey, you know, you're at the top of Hacker News. And then, um, uh, I checked my email and there was, there was a ton of emails. It was pretty cool. Uh, you know, I didn't, I didn't get, uh, sweaty, but I'll tell you a, a story where, um, uh, when, when I didn't think there were that many people, um, at, at my where I work, using Eternal Terminal, I was pretty cavalier about rolling out updates. And if you imagine like updating SSH, you either have to like update the server, but then also support the older clients, or you have to basically update everything at once and then kick everyone out and then say, "Hey, you need to update your client." And so in the beginning, it just made a lot more sense to do that. This actually gets back to the over-engineering thing. Um, you know we were making so many changes and learning a lot about what it meant to write sort of a good remote terminal um that it didn't make sense to keep around old versions um and uh and at one point uh we released a bad version and something like 300 people uh couldn't remote into their machine um and and uh that was terrifying so there's there's been some times where things did get pretty terrifying, but uh, the good thing is, you know, it's been three years since uh, we started Eternal Terminal. And so at this point is mature enough that, you know, uh, even though there's a ton of people coming, most of them were able to just start using uh, I think it's, it's, it, it helped that um, someone asked, oh, someone asked, how do you deal with having a, a single, like how do, how do you handle extremely large repos? I've read about Google having a mono um. So a lot of these companies, yeah, have one single repository for the whole company, um, but but they're not using just regular Git. Um, they're, 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 they've they they often forked something like Mercurial or Git, but they have their own version, and so you, you can check out just parts of the repo. And so you could think of it, you could imagine it as like a repo, but every subdirectory can be its own repo if you want it to. Um, there's also like shadow file systems. The short answer is it's actually... It's a huge technical challenge to have a huge monorepo and so it's I'm kind of surprised that there isn't a product out there that that enables that but I guess the reason is there just aren't that many people who have I think Google has like 14 billion lines of code or something and there just aren't that many companies that have that much code that you know a monorepo becomes that's I think that's all the questions. did, did I did do we miss any of them or I don't think so but but it's possible <laughs> Yeah. Someone said, um, so yeah, I think, oh, someone posted the face recognition. It's called, um, I'll, I'll put a link in the show notes, but yeah, the, the repo is called face recognition It has, actually it does have the most stars on GitHub. It has 30,000 stars, which might be the most image processing, most stars. Cool. Um, I think that's it. Should we wrap it up? All right. Well, thanks
0: everyone. It's been a blast of a year.
1: Yeah. Yeah. It's been totally amazing. Um, it's, Again, just astonishing to see the the, the the support that we have and to actually like literally see it here in spreadsheet form <laughs> is really exciting. Um, thanks again. You know, we have actually, we already recorded one interview and we have some other interviews and other content lined up that's super exciting. So uh, we look forward to sharing that with you folks next year. All right, see you guys.